I'm going to make an assumption here that most people here today have probably seen the movie The Princess Bride. And if you haven't, that's okay. You'll get the illustration anyway. But I want to talk about this certain part in The, in the Princess Bride. There's these two characters, Fezzik and Inigo. And Inigo, he has kind of given up hope and he's depressed, and Fezzik is trying to find Inigo, and he gets into this village in this area, and he finds Inigo, and Inigo is completely drunk. And he kind of seems like he's, you know, has no cares in the world, but Fezzik has some hope, and he has a message he wants to share with him, but he knows he can't share it with him while he's drunk. So he takes Inigo, you guys remember this? Okay, he takes Inigo, and then he just puts his head and dunks it in the water, 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 gives him soup, gives him coffee, dunks his head in the water, keeps going back and forth, and eventually Inigo, enough! And it's then that Inigo is sobered up, and he can hear what Fezzik wants to tell him. Now, it seemed, maybe, that Inigo had no cares, but we know that he turned to alcohol to comfort himself, and it really kept him from reality, right? Even though Inigo seemed to be happy, he wasn't. He didn't know what was real, and so he had to be sobered up in order to be able to even hear what Fezzik was going to tell him. Now, as I remind you of that movie and remind you of that scene, I saw smiles on people's faces. Oh, I love that movie. And maybe now you're like, hey, movie night. That sounds good, right? Um, But some of you have actually dealt with alcoholism yourself personally or with loved ones. And you don't have smile on your face when you think about that. Because you know, like, it's no joke. As with many alcoholics, they think they're fine. And they think they have things under control, but the people close to them know they don't know reality. They're not seeing reality. And it's a very sad and pitiable state to be in because they need to be sobered up. Now, I share that by way of illustration because as I have read and reread Revelation 6, 1 through 6 that we're looking at today, I feel like it's a spiritual sobriety passage. I mean, with every other church up to this point, Jesus states what he sees as good and what he sees as bad and explains the bad. And this one, he just says, essentially, it's bad. And I'm reminded of what I consider to be another one of those terrifying and sobering passages in Scripture where Jesus is speaking in his Sermon on the Mount and says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. When was the last time you pondered that passage? Today's sermon is actually a very similar message. And I hope and I pray that this letter 
sobers anyone here who is spiritually drunk. And so with that, I want to move forward, give you main idea of the sermon. And that is, let's together reawaken to the power of Jesus and his promise, cleansing, care, and confession. Let's reawaken to the power of Jesus and his promise, cleansing, care, and confession, as opposed to resting in our reputation. And to quote, as what Jesus says in every letter, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to give a little bit of a backdrop to this city of Sardis because some of the background actually plays into how Jesus speaks to the church there. This city of Sardis was actually on a hill, and as one person wrote about this, the hill on which Sardis was built had smooth, nearly perpendicular rock walls on three sides of the city. Only from the south side, the city could be approached via a steep, difficult pass. Its seemingly impregnable location caused the inhabitants of Sardis to become overconfident, overconfident. That complacency eventually led to the city's downfall. Through carelessness, the unimaginable happened. Sardis was conquered. Now, interestingly enough, it was conquered on two different occasions, in the B.C. 500s and in the B.C. 200s. And it was actually said in the 500s attack that a child could have rescued the city. If they just had a child sitting in that one spot on the south and said, hey, hey, there's people over here, they would have destroyed them. But they thought, nobody's going to attack and then what's really interesting is in 300 years later, the same thing happens. You would have thought they would have learned their lesson, but what it seems to be the case is that, you know, I mean, 300 years is a long time. And so they just thought that was a fluke. That's never going to happen again. And yet it happened again. Sardis's pride and trust in their own protection led them to be open to be overcome by their enemies. Now, by the time we get to the, this letter in Revelation, Sardis, Sardis was still a prosperous city, but its glory days were over. And Jesus is speaking to the church at Sardis as if they are following in the steps of ancient Sardis. But the church in Sardis is not fighting a physical battle, they're fighting a spiritual one. Will they listen to their King Jesus? And the question for us is, will we listen to our King Jesus through this message. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I want to give you a few moments to pray and ask that the Lord would keep your ears open and our ears open as a church family. So you pray, and then I'll continue in this text. Let's start with that first half of the main idea. 
let's together reawaken to the power of Jesus as opposed to resting in our reputation. Now, in order to understand, in order to understand the problem in Sardis, we have to first gaze at Jesus and the vision Jesus gives of himself. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Every vision of Jesus to the churches answers the problems that those churches are facing, specifically. And so we need to see how does Jesus reveal himself to Sardis. In verse 1 we read, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now that can be kind of confusing to understand. What does that mean? How is that powerful? I don't get it but I think that we can quickly understand their meaning. Jesus reveals two things about himself. First, he has what I'm saying, the sevenfold spirit. The reason why I put it that way is because seven is throughout the scriptures a very important number that has a meaning behind it. It's a symbol of fulfillment, completion, perfection. And so when John says seven spirits, I actually think that the New Living Translation, some of you probably have it here as you're sitting here, the New Living Translation, I think, is accurate in its translation, the sevenfold spirit. I think that also matches elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures. In Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 4, the number seven shows up and the Lord speaks of power and he says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. That's how I'm going to accomplish my work. And so I think that there's an attachment even to that Zechariah passage. This is the full, complete, whole spirit. Here, Jesus is the one who has the authority to send the spirit, the spirit who works the power of God in the lives of people, the spirit whom Jesus said he would send to the earth. And he would send to guide people into all truth. The spirit whom Jesus said would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The spirit by whom we can honor the Lord and live for God's glory in whatever we do. Jesus has the spirit. And Jesus has the seven stars. This one actually is a little bit easier to understand what this is because in Revelation 1.20 we are told they are the angels of the churches. There are seven churches that are being written to. And by the way, the seven is a completion because by putting all those churches together, they're representative of the universal, okay? Now, the question is, is angel, what are, what are these angels? Um, it can be translated angel. The Greek words can also be translated messenger. Is it a representative of the church? Is it a messenger in the church? Is it an angel in church? Which one is it, Pastor Timothy? And my answer is, I don't know, okay? Here's what, I, here's what I do believe is the emphasis, though, when Jesus says he has them, is that Jesus is saying, I know every single church. I, I own them. They're mine. I have them. He knows each church, each local church is his, and he has the Spirit, and every church needs the Spirit, right? Because without the Spirit, we can't do anything of eternal value. So Jesus has the Spirit, and He has the churches, and He has the answer to the church's need, right? So we ought to listen. Listen to Jesus and understand our need and our utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. I mean, do we really understand that? Do we understand that apart from the Spirit, anything, do you understand, apart from the Spirit, anything you do is eternally worthless? 
anything if it's apart from the Spirit. I mean, I can't help but think, even in my own life, how tempted I am to think that spiritual maturity is being able to do something on my own. Right? Like, like we learn that even as, as little children in this world, right? You got to grow up. You got to be able to do this on your own. And we are grateful for that as parents, aren't we? You know, I'm glad I'm not in the diaper days anymore, right? I'm glad my children have learned. Very glad, right? But, but like, that's understandable, okay? But we translate that into relationship with God, or at least I do. And I can say, look, God, I can do this without you now. That's not good. If I can do it without him, then I'm not doing it. Like, I'm really not glorifying him. You and I need the Spirit. Because unless the Lord builds the house, what's the rest of that verse? They labor in vain. He has to be the one to work through us. We're always needy for the Spirit. The right response that we should have as we grow spiritually is, Oh, Lord, you've given me grace. Now, more. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let me grow further in debt to your grace. Because I need you and you have given me yourself. This is what I think Sardis lost. What we see with Sardis is that they rested in their reputation. They were assuming that they were faithful to Jesus because they had a good reputation. But look what Jesus says. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. Say with me the next part. But you are dead. Be alert, strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Years ago, when I was pastoring at Calvary Baptist, um, the pastor at the time, before he left that church, Mark Rogup, many of you know him, uh, Mark Rogup said to me something that was also passed down to him from somebody else that many of you know, Joanne Shelton. And Mark said to me before he left this statement, you take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. Now, the point of what he was saying was, your heart and your motives matter more than just the external actions. Because we can think many times, we, we just want to focus on the reputation. How do people think about us? And we can assume that if we have a good reputation, then that proves that our character is good. If people think well of us, if people think well of you, well, then clearly you must be doing something right. Right? Right? Amen, Becky. The reputation of this church was one that appeared to have all the characteristics of life. This church seemed to be flourishing. The church seemed to have it all together. The church seemed to be mature. The church seemed to be on the side of God. Yet Jesus says they were dead and their works were not complete before God. This sounds like the Apostle Paul talking to Timothy when he says that there can be people in the church that have an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. I recall a story, a true story, of a pastor in Philadelphia by the name of Donald Barnhouse. A hundred years ago, his sermons were broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. 
And Barnhouse was speculating, what would Philadelphia look like if Satan took over? And this is what he said in his sermon. This is what he said Philadelphia would look like if Satan took over. All the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Just let that sink. Now, we know that's not always how Satan works, but we know that that is one way that he can work. That Satan would be, I think, perfectly content and happy with very moral people who don't care about Jesus. Churches that are very moral and have appearances of religiosity, but aren't centered on Jesus Christ. Because with that, we can get that false sense of security in our reputation. Well, look at me. I do that, I do this, I do that. So I must be good. I pray we wouldn't fall into that trap. I pray that none of us have fallen into that trap. But you have to ask the question, are you more concerned about your reputation than you are about your heart character? And I want to ask you just a couple of questions with that. A couple of basic questions. In your life, do you regularly commune with the Lord? In other words, seek Him and want Him in the Word and prayer. In hearing the Word and praying. Do you talk about Jesus with both believers and non-believers? In other words, are you making disciples and evangelizing? Why am I asking these questions? I ask them for a very specific reason, because to commune with and have a relationship with the Lord is why Jesus came. That is salvation. Jesus said it himself in John 6 when the people are asking him a question. What can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. And by the way, that word believe isn't just mentally assent to it, like, oh yeah, I know who he is. That word believe is to trust in, to depend on, to rely on. Jesus is your life. Jesus is your savior. Jesus is your identity. To believe on the son, to, to be reconciled to God through Jesus, to have a relationship with God, that is salvation. This is eternal life, to know him relationally. And yet, I can be so burdened because I have been pastoring for 20 plus years and I have had many conversations where I ask the question about word and prayer. And people will acknowledge that's basically non-existent in their life. And some people even so far as to say, I don't really even think about God in a given day. Does that sound like salvation? Is that what Jesus died for? No. And, then, and then, then it's no wonder to me that if I ask the question about discipleship and evangelism, people aren't doing that because they're not communing with Jesus. 
They haven't come into contact with Jesus because this is something I do know. If you come into contact with Jesus, you have to talk about him. You have to. You can't help it. You need to speak Jesus because he's so good. He's so great. So how does Jesus, does Jesus and his commission course through your veins? Or are you simply resting in your reputation and not resting in Jesus? Why do you do what you do? I pray we wouldn't be content with our reputation because our reputation will not save us. Only Jesus saves. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Only Jesus saves. I hope, I hope even that you hear the burden in my own heart and the desperation because I have been gripped this past week by the sobriety of this passage. Maybe we, Ventura, need to be sobered up. I pray that all of us would seriously consider the words of Jesus to Sardis. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Is that us? Is that me? Is that you? Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7. There will be many who will be confused in the judgment. Many will say, whoa, We've done all these things, prophesying, miracles, great things. And after each one, in your name, meaning for your glory, we did it. We did it for your glory. And what does Jesus say? I never knew you. There wasn't a relationship. How can seemingly good works really be law-breaking? This is the point that's brought out here in the text. They have a good reputation. I believe it's talking about in Asia Minor. They have a good reputation, but their works weren't complete. Now, when you hear that phrase, you could be tempted to think, oh, their works weren't complete, so they just needed to do more. Just add to the works, and then they'll get to completion. It's kind of how we're ten we tend to think. But remember the vision of Jesus. Remember the vision of Jesus? He has the, what was the first one? The Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit, and seven refers to what? Fulfillment and completion. Your works aren't complete. Who do you need? By the ministry of the Spirit giving us Christ. We need the Spirit. We don't need to just do a little bit more in order to please God. That's not it. We need the Holy Spirit. You may remember the story I told, I've told it on a few occasions, where there was a time that some churches brought over Christians from another country to see the church, churches in America and visit those churches. And then those Christians were here in America for a couple of weeks, and then the Christians in America said, hey, so what do you think about the church in America? And their response was, if you remember, their response was, it is amazing how much the church can do without the Holy Spirit. The 
Scriptures tell us that we are to walk by the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, because we live by the Spirit. This is relational. Oh, Spirit, open my eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Spirit, show me. Spirit, give me the ability to live and obey and honor. Show me Jesus, because the Spirit is the one who magnifies the Son, so that then the Son points us to the Father. We need the Holy Spirit. You will not live this way if you think you got this covered. I've grown up, God. I don't need you anymore. Oh, I hope we don't say that. I hope we don't practically say that through how we live. We need to be dependent on the Spirit. And so, as well, Jesus moves on in this letter, not only to say we need to reawaken to the power of Jesus and deny the lies of our reputation, but together as well, we need to reawaken to Jesus' promise, cleansing, care, and confession. Let's uh, read together again verses 2 through 5. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Be alert. Strengthen what remains. That phrase, be alert, can also be translated, wake up. Wake up. Or look at yourselves. Can you even see the spiritual death that you're in? Or to use the illustration I used at the beginning, get out of your drunkenness, sober up. See reality. We as a people are often too prone to cover ourselves up and continually seek to make ourselves look better than we really are. And I would not be surprised if there are people in this room who are living that way, that you are depending on your reputation. That's dangerous. It's a very dangerous game to play. pray it's not the case. But if it is, wake up. Be alert. Jesus then adds, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. That word for thing, I just want to let you know, means thing. Now I'm saying that because I want to know what the things are. What are we supposed to strengthen? Strengthen the things. What are the things? What is Jesus talking about here? There's things here that are means of grace to the souls of the people. What are those things? And the first one, if I can, if I can word it this way, I'd say the Bible. In verse 3 we read, remember then what you have received and heard. Actually, I wish that modern translations would not say what you have received and heard, but instead translate it as how. That is perfectly fine to translate it that way. Remember how you have received and heard. 
does give a little bit of a nuance. It's a seemingly important difference because Jesus is saying in order to change, the church needs to remember how they received life in the beginning days. How did you receive life in the beginning? How did the church receive grace from the Lord in the beginning? And I'm reminded of passages like Romans 10, verse 17, that says, faith comes from what is heard and what is heard through the message of Christ. Or faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how we receive the grace of faith, is that the power of the Spirit through the word being proclaimed, and then we believe, right? That's how we received the word of God. Clearly then, in Sardis, the word of God is still there. It's still there. And, Paul, and, and, and Jesus is saying to the church, remember the word. Get back to the word. What is really being said? Because this will give life. God's words do give life. Will they listen? That's the second element of how. The other thing, I think, is referring to faith. Because if we go back to Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But he talks about faith. And in the midst of these verses, we're told about people who are still faithful. It's talking about people who have faith and live on the basis of faith. We're also told in this text there's a number of people who don't have faith in this church. But those who have faith, Jesus is saying, exercise the faith. Don't give up. We can have a tendency to do that if we're in the minority, can't we? And maybe even especially if we're in the midst of people who profess to be Christians. But I'm reminded of Paul when he says in Galatians 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which one? We know the answer. Hearing with faith. Oh, Spirit, give us faith to believe what you say in the Word. Will we listen to the Word? Will we realize our need for the Lord and depend on the Spirit? Now, you say, okay, thank you for saying those phrases. What does that look like? In some ways, I think we know better what it doesn't look like. And so I'll, I'll use that example. When you think about the Israelites, they were like really faithful people, right? No. And we know, we know, like we feel the pain when, when they're getting reprimanded, I, at least I do. And God is reprimanding them for their disobedience. He says, you needed to do this and you did this instead. And then this is what I'm calling you to. And then the Israelites go, everything you said, we will do. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, why? This isn't going to go well. Oh, again? Right? That's our tendency, by the way. That's us. Strengthen what remains. Okay, I'm just going to try a little bit harder. That's what the Israelites did. I'm just going to try a little bit harder. What they should have done is they said, we can't. Our hearts are so broken. Lord, we need you to mend them. We need you to grace us so that we can grow in obedience. But we need you most of all. We need to know you. We need to love you. And I can't conjure that up in my own strength. We need you. That's dependence on the Spirit. I need you for everything. I need you. 
Will we listen and submit to Jesus' words? Will we sober up and see reality? Do you even want to see reality? I hope so. I hope so and pray so because Jesus warns that those who refuse, he will be like a thief in the night. And by the way, this is not talking about a glorious rapture moment when we will be face to face with our gracious Lord. In this context, when he's talking here, I'm coming like a thief in the night, this is judgment. I like surprises. I would not want this one. Remember what Jesus said about himself in the vision. He has the churches. He knows the heart of the church. He knows every single person's heart. And he will judge justly. Are you going to continue to cling to your reputation? Are you going to trust your reputation to save you? Because I guarantee this. Listen, listen. When Jesus makes his judgment, and if you've been trusting in self and not in Christ... Nobody is going to come up and say, whoa, 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 God, you got that wrong. They were really nice. I can affirm. They were nice to me. Now, the Bible says every mouth will be stopped in the judgment. Jesus is right. Why cling? Why cling to your reputation? When Jesus gives himself and he gives so many gifts as a result of his grace. That's where Jesus wants to move this letter to, to show his love and compassion for the people who actually trust him. We see Jesus promised cleansing. That's one of the motivations for the Christians in the church to endure. This letter actually reminds me of the hymn Amazing Grace and the line in the hymn where, where John Newton writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Comes together, right? This letter, fearful, sobering, and then <gasps> joy, relief. This is how Jesus wants to end this letter. Jesus speaks to those who have faith, calling to live it out all the more because he will clothe them with white garments. And this is true of anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus. That white garments is symbolic of purity. How can that be? It's because of what we know in the scriptures elsewhere that Jesus became sin. Jesus became impure on the cross and took our sins on himself. And then, for all who trust in him, he transfers his righteousness to us. Now, this illustration was especially meaningful in Sardis and I think would actually be meaningful to us in our culture today too because the people in Sardis cared about what they looked like and how they dressed. You didn't want to walk around with dirty clothes. And I think that many of us, too, are like, oh, no, I just spilled a little coffee. I got to change. You know, like, that's kind of ridiculous. If we were in another, you know, poverty country, you know, like, what in the world, right? You got a lot of privileges. But that we care about. I care about that much. And Jesus says to Sardis, like, you, you're soiled completely, right? But Jesus gives you white robes 
completely pure, completely clean. And so whenever we are with, and we always are as believers, in the presence of God, he sees us as righteous and pure in his sight because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That he is, he, he loves us and purifies us, even when, and we know, we're not perfect, right? I've not been perfect today, neither of you, and yet we have the robes of Christ around us. <laughs> we have pure clothes, but you could say, what if I get defiled again? What if I fall back again? Look at his care. The second reward mentioned is that Jesus will keep his children. I will never, let me just say that again, I will never erase his name from the book of life. Woo! Never. Now we can say, but what about those, what about those Christians who are in the church that, then, that, that, that Jesus says they don't believe on him, that they're unfaithful, Were they Christians and then they lost their salvation? No, I think it's what John says elsewhere. They went out from us because they never were of us. Okay? But to those who are Christ's, you are on the citizenship roles of the New Jerusalem. Did you know that the psalmist even says, it will be written of them that they were born in Jerusalem? Like, we are citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus keeps us in his care. And then the final, oh, mm, get this progression of what is taking place. Jesus, because of Jesus, he clothes us with his righteousness. Then he writes us in the registers of heaven. And then, then there's the day where we actually come face to face with God. Now, there are those who will come face to face with God in the judgment, right? Where Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief. That is not, I would not want to meet God in that context. But there's another context where we're written in the annals of Jerusalem and then we get to see our Father face to face and Jesus is there and Jesus confesses us before the Father. It's like Jesus is saying, Father, this one's mine. I rescued him. I've grown him. I've made him faithful. I've made her faithful. Here, this is yours. What's that going to be like? And then then we know what the scriptures say elsewhere. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And he's going to say, welcome into the joy of the Lord. Is clinging to my reputation worth rejecting Jesus? Jesus is so good. Jesus is so glorious. And so again, I pray, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And as I pray, and as the musicians come forward while I pray, I want you to pray as well. Oh, Father, show me 
Spirit, show me how I need to repent. Where, how, in what ways. But may I not just repent because I'm trying to add to some work. I need you. So, Father, I thank you for your kindnesses. I thank you for hard words like these. Because for those of us who know you and trust Christ, these words will only compel our obedience and our trust in you. Father, I also thank you that in a moment we're going to sing this song, Overcome. And we're not saying we will overcome because we're so great, but it's because Jesus and his message is so powerful. Oh, so I pray we trust you truly, genuinely, and we rejoice in your sovereign care. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, please stand and hear God's words of blessing. Receive this now. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.